That was a nice little flashback. Little Beatles. All you need is love. Wouldn't that be nice if that were completely true, right? You know, we sing that song, it's so familiar, and it sounds so good, kind of altruistic, a little bit naive, uh, certainly idealistic, right? We just kind of go, man, wouldn't it just be great if all we had was love? And then we look around and we don't. And we have a dilemma. Great song to help us think about uh, where we're going today in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And, uh, you know, this is probably one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament, just for your average person, right? We've all heard the love chapter. And yet it's really interesting that this chapter may be one of the most mischaracterized chapters of our New Testament. In other words, people have all kinds of assumptions about what it's saying and what it means and its significance, and yet when we get into it, uh, it, it may shock us a little bit. I think a lot of people are very sentimental about this chapter. You know, you, you hear it at weddings and uh, you hear songs uh, either written about it or the words read while it's playing in the background. And so, so we have this very sentimental kind of relationship with this. And yet, if you had been in Corinth and you got this letter the first time reading it from Paul, I promise you the last thing you ever would have felt was any kind of sentimentalism. Like this wasn't a warm fuzzy from Paul. This is serious, serious business. Now, uh, chapter 13 also, it's interesting, gets pulled out of its context a lot of times. So I, I don't even know, maybe you haven't heard chapter 13 taught or preached in the context of 1 Corinthians. You might have heard like a one-off message about love from 1 Corinthians 13. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's very interesting to study this passage in light of where we have been in the rest of this letter. We certainly don't want to separate the two. Um, students of 1 Corinthians would say this chapter is the thematic center of the book. Did you know that? Like what Paul's doing, he's been addressing all kinds of stuff about their behaviors and their religious tendencies and their body life and the Lord's Supper, right? We've been talking about all this kind of stuff, but we're gonna get down to today what he's been trying to address all along, and it's this thing called love. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 14, so just near the end of the book, we find out that's where Paul's been going from verse one. He has this phrase, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's think about that for just a minute. Let all that you do, not just a little bit of what you do, not just when you kind of feel like doing what you're doing, Literally, everything you do should be done in love. That must mean that love is big enough, it's comprehensive enough to inform 
everything that you do, big or small. It's really meant to touch every single speck of your life. And then the fact that he says, let all that you be done, that's an imperative, it's a command, but it implies there's a choice. Every day, every moment, every second you have is an opportunity to either walk out whatever it is this word love means or something else, kind of whatever you want to do. That's the option. And the Corinthians, as they thought about this option, and I'm sure this wasn't the first time they'd ever heard this word love, their approach to it might have been the question popularized by Tina Turner years ago. What's love got to do with it? Right? You know, we're like we're a happening church in a happening city. We got a lot going on. We're super sophisticated. We've got supernatural gifts. I mean, there's probably a lot of little churches kind of around the countryside of Corinth that probably look at our church and go, wow, they are something. I mean, they are really the model church. If we could only be like the church in Corinth. And they're going, yeah. What's love got to do with it? And Paul says, it has everything to do with it. In fact, you have so missed the mark. I got to write a whole chapter to help you understand how important this one thing is. Love is indispensable. Christianity literally isn't Christianity without it. It is as core as it can possibly be, this, this idea of love. And we're going to learn about it this morning. But coming out of chapter 12, Paul finished that chapter by saying, I will show you still a more excellent way. So again, the Corinthians, one of their problems is they think they got it all going on, that they're just awesome and everybody just wants to be like them. And Paul's trying to say, no. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. You have got so much to work on, but, but you gotta get this first. If you don't get this, then nothing else is going to work. So then Paul goes to work and he begins in verse one. This is a little bit of a, of a hypothetical description. It's certainly exaggerated, but he's gonna use himself as a way of describing the significance of love in everyday life. So look at verse one. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You remember what I said about that whole sentimental idea of 1 Corinthians? He basically has totally gutted everything that they hold dear as a church. All those things that they've celebrated, all those, all those things that they think are so important. 
He says, listen, every bit of that, regardless of what the world thinks, if, if love is absent, it's meaningless. It's nothing. Now look, he points to tongues. And that reference there is, is probably, it's most definitely supernatural. It's probably unintelligible. We're gonna talk about how those operate uh, from a church perspective, but that would be pretty stunning, wouldn't it? And he's saying, if that isn't fueled by love, it's like just a bunch of noise. In fact, uh, the noisy gong, the clanging cymbal, those were things that you would have encountered in pagan worship. If you went to those temples that were all around Corinth, you'd have heard a bunch of noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. So there's no mistake that he put that in there. He's like, all that noise that you hear, that's what you sound like without love. Man, if you, if you get prophecy like foretelling and foretelling, if you understand all, not just some, all the mysteries of God, if you possess all the knowledge of God, this isn't omniscience, but it's real close. If you have all of that and no love, guess what you got? Nothing. Faith to move mountains. Sacrificial, you give it all, not just some of it. Martyrdom. Martyrdom without love. It's a zero. I, I, Chuck Swindoll has a little formula here. I love it. I... I I just added one little word to it, but here it is. Everything minus love equals a noisy nothing. You can take that to the bank. The best version of you without love is a zero. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? Might be a little disheartening but you know what? If you understand that, you're on your way to life. Here's the worst implication of what they believed in what Paul is confronting. It's a distorted gospel. You see, they as a church, they weren't looking to love for life. They're looking to themselves. And what happens when an unredeemed person looks to themselves for life, they die. They stay separated from God. Because salvation is a gift. So this is serious business here. He's not just saying, hey, here's a good little ingredient that you ought to throw in and that will really help your church get it back together again. He's saying, if this ingredient, this particular thing is missing, you're dead. A church that perpetuates loveless religious activity will ultimately lead people to a Christless eternity. That's a big deal. 
This ain't no sentimental love letter. This is very confrontational. Tim Keller, and he references Jonathan Edwards, uh, he points to a a little teaching that, that Jesus did in Matthew 7 to try and help us get what's happening here. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, listen to this and think about what we just read. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, pointing to the day when all things come to a conclusion, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Now catch this. Did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Apparently, it's possible to manifest supernatural wonders and be lost. And the way that you're lost is to be without love. Not a love that you generate on your own, not something that you can produce in and of yourself. You must encounter love in its purest form and it will change your life and you will have life. And then all of those manifestations will actually begin to make sense. Tim Keller says the Christian life is more than a moral or a miraculous life. It's a love life. And we love because he first loved us. That's the way it goes. That's the order of things. So now that we're motivated, right? We've got some serious motivation here. What in the world are we talking about? What will love look like when we find it, when we see it? Point two in your outline. Love is, and I apologize, I changed my mind on a word there, so this isn't gonna fit. I'm just gonna have to write it in there anyway. Love is a gesture of goodwill. I hope that will make sense when we get to the end of this section, but love is a gesture of goodwill. It's not a thought. It's more than a feeling, Boston, late 70s. (laughs) It's more than an intention. Love is an action, or DC Talk would say love is a verb. This is really fun. (laughs) Gordon Fee, he's a commentator, wrote a uh, commentary on Corinthians, says this, love is not an idea for Paul. And you know, we love ideas, don't we? We love to just entertain intellectual sophistication. He says, love is not an idea for Paul, not even a motivating factor for behavior. It is behavior. To love is to act. Anything short of action is not love at all. So, Here's how Paul describes it, beginning in verse four. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant 
or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, before you get sentimental on me, that, that ought to knock you out of your chair. Like this is equivalent to the statement where God says to his imperfect, sinful, rebellious people, you, be holy because I'm holy. And what do we do? Seriously? I don't think I can do that. See, if you're, if you're reading through this list and you're going, oh, that's just, oh, yes, patience and kindness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's not the deal here. This ought to be overwhelming. This is how Christ followers relate when love is ruling their lives. So anytime your life doesn't look like that, it's real simple. Love isn't ruling your life in that moment. You are ruling your life in that moment. You're just doing your own thing, which is what the Corinthians were doing, which Paul is confronting. Now, Paul uses a word here, again, the, the familiarity. We just gotta push that aside. You've heard this word a thousand times. The Greek word for love is agape, of course it is. And that's one of three words. So you've heard the other two as well. Eros, which is like an erotic or sexual type of love. And then you've got phileo or philia, which is more of like a brotherly or a familial kind of love. And then this is agape, or the verb is agapao. It's not those other two. And it's enormous. It's so much bigger and so much better. It designates the divine selfless love which will go to any length to attain the well-being of its object. It means to love the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. Now, in our world, we love with strings attached, right? It's an exchange. You love me, I love you. If you don't love me, I go love somebody else. It's always conditional. It's transactional. This is different. I'm going to do a wedding next weekend. It's my daughter. And I'm going to stand in front of her and this young animal. <laughs> I love him to death. His name is Micah. He's awesome. Now I'm going to stand in front of them. And I'm going to ask them to make some vows. And you know what they're going to vow to? Agape. 
There'll be a little eros thrown in and there'll be a little philia thrown in. But what they're standing before God committing to is agape. That means unconditional. I love you not for what you can do for me, not for how you're performing, not for how hard or easy it is, but simply because my God has loved me. The Old Testament equivalent to this is hesed. It's not an emotional response to beauty or merit or kindness. It's none of those. It's a moral attitude dedicated to another's good, whether or not that other is lovable, worthy, or responsive. One commentator says agape is an attitude of radical and completely selfless concern for others which cannot be readily combined with concepts of rights or fairness, both of which imply that a person has certain legitimate claims for himself. See, when it comes to love, <laughs> we just come to give, not to get. I wanna run back through verses four through seven, and uh, I want Eugene Peterson to sort of help us fill out what these words that we've heard so many times. So I'm gonna go through this slowly, but follow with me. Love never gives up. It's long-suffering. See, patience isn't when I've got it all together, I'm in a great place and I'm content and happy and joyful and everything else and so I can kind of put up with whatever, however long, I mean, just I'm unfazed. That's not what it's talking about. This is talking about on your worst day, you're patient, you're long-suffering, you stay in it even when you don't feel like it. That's love. Love cares more for others than for self. It sounds so simple, but that's kindness. It's literally considering others more important than you. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. See, love is this place of contentment where you could actually celebrate what others have. Because see, you're so, you're so oriented around their good, not your own. That it, it's just a joy to celebrate what they have, not wish you had it instead of them. Love doesn't strut it doesn't steal the spotlight. It's not trying to be the middle of everything. It's just a part of the community. It doesn't have a swelled head. Love doesn't look down except to see where it can go to serve. 
It doesn't force itself on others. It's not demanding. It's not manipulative. It's always inviting. It isn't always me first. This sounds so stupid, but like when I'm driving along and me in another car and, you know, and the, the lanes are going down, I'm like, I, I gotta be in front of them for some reason. <laughs> what is up with that? But you know what? What did Paul say? In every single thing that you do, even when you're driving your stupid car down the road, do what you do in love. Love doesn't fly off the handle. It has a long fuse. It doesn't escalate. Love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. And typically the reason we would do that is for payback. It doesn't revel when others grovel. I, I might have a little problem. I, I'm not sure how Eugene got there on that one. But it, love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. I would just say there's no joy in any form of evil or injustice. Love takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. And then love puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, and never looks back. If you're wondering what it looks like when you find it, there it is. That's what we're looking for. And, you know, that's what others are looking for in us. So if you're a Corinthian or a fellowshipian, what do you do? Like, this really sounds impossible, doesn't it? I hope it does, because apart from Christ, it is. So number one, pray your guts out. Ask the Lord to do a work in you, to put love in you that you could never put there on your own. And you know, this isn't in this text, but it's in Ephesians 3 when Paul was praying for that church. He was asking that they would be enabled by God to see the height and depth and length and breadth of God's love for them because he knew that you will love only to the degree that you grasp the love that God has for you. So immerse yourself in what the scriptures have to say about the love of God and let it wash over you and it will change your heart. And then lastly, reorder your thinking, your priorities and your relationships around a life of love. And why would you do that? And here's the answer. Number three in your outline, love is the goat. Now, we love to think about the goat, right? You got MJ, you got LJ. You got Brady, you got Manning. You got Bolt, and there isn't anybody else. He's just fast. Bach or Beethoven. Like, 
Listen, love is the greatest of all time. There's nothing even close. That's why you orient everything about you around love. And Paul says, it never ends. Look at verse eight. Love never ends. Now as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Like Corinthians, all those things that you have so clung to, they're gonna pass away. They're temporary. Verse nine, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So it, it's really logical Paul is saying you can give yourself to these empty temporary things like prophecy or tongues or knowledge which have their place. They're not bad things. They're just temporary things. And you can give yourself to those things as if they're ultimate, but you're going to be disappointed. Or you can give yourself to that which will never end that which will never fail. Literally, that which is never defeated, that which is never brought to the ground, that which stands up and remains regardless of opposition. You can have that. You can give yourself to that and know that it will never, ever, ever disappoint. Love can literally never be extinguished. Why is that? Because God is love. The gifts that you have, they're precious and beautiful and God will use them to build up the church, but they have a shelf life. And there will come a day when you won't need them anymore. That's where he's going with this. He's saying there's going to come a day when love comes to town. You too, B.B. King. <laughs> and when love comes to town, you don't need those things anymore because it's full. There, there, there's not additional information needed and you don't have to trust in your imagination to wonder what it will be like. It will be right before you. And you will get lost in that. The present, he uses two illustrations here, it's like child's play. And again, that's just where we live right now, this in-between time. So we do childish things like knowledge and tongues and prophecy. That's not a... That's, that's not a, a critical thing. It's just a real thing. Like we're not upset with our kids when they act like kids, right? 
But if they're 50 acting like a kid, we'd go, whoa, something's not right here. And it would be like us getting to that day when love comes to town and we're still clinging to knowledge and tongues and prophecy. And Jesus is like, hello, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff, it was pointing to me. Now we see in a mirror dimly. The Corinthians were known for their bronze mirrors. But what would you rather have? A mirror or the real thing? FaceTime's great, but wouldn't you rather be in the same room? That's what Paul's getting at here. They had embraced what is considered a, they call it a realized eschatology. And it, it's a way of thinking that just says, all that we believe will be true one day, we're just gonna bring that right into today and just say that it's all true right now, even though everybody's looking around going, seriously? I'm, I don't see it. <laughs> You're right, you don't see it because it's not here right now. It will be one day. So until that day, Live and love well in the partial until the perfect arrives. That's what we do. And as best we can, we, we conform our lives to the descriptions I've just read to you. We make that our North Star. That's what we're going after. And the more we give ourselves to that, the more the Lord causes that to be true of us as we relate to others. Verse 13 is really just a summary. Now faith, hope, and love abide or remain these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's the deal. There's not even a close second. I hope you feel incredibly convicted and incredibly hopeful. Because the Lord didn't leave this as some kind of dark mystery back somewhere that you have to try and figure out. He came in flesh and blood so that you could see what love looks like. And he's inviting you to join him in that kind of life. So I want you to take a moment and just invite the Lord to uh, whatever it is that you need to be thinking about as it relates to love. It may be just some, some sadness or disappointment or discouragement or need. It, maybe it's about you, maybe it's about others. Whatever it is, this this precious gift of love that is so central to life, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you into some kind of response to what he has done on your behalf. Take a moment and prayerfully consider that.